This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, and uh, that cross-faded music you just heard is, of course, the immortal OJ's doing money. This is, in fact, our annual Pledge Drive program here on KDVS. For 52 weeks out of the year, we talk about how this is a community radio station. Yes, we are affiliated with the University of California, Davis, but the people that make this station work are not just students at this university. Only our dedicated core staff are UCD students. The rest of us are people like us here at Radio Parallax. Your host, Douglas Everett, that would be moi, and our producer, Edward McMillan. But let us start the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. On today's date, which is April 19th in 1592... A letter representing 14 cities and six Lutheran princes is read in protest of German Emperor Charles V's anti-Lutheran policy. The protesters became known as Protestants, a term eventually applied to most non-Catholic Christians. On this date in 1876, a Wichita, Kansas commission votes not to rehire policeman and legendary gunslinger Wyatt Earp after he beats up a candidate for county sheriff. Six years later, on April 19, 1882, the immortal Charles Darwin passes away of a heart attack in Down, Kent, England. He was 71. Our quote of the day comes from Army Colonel Dick Halleck, who was recently quoted in the Columbus, Georgia Ledger Enquirer. Colonel Halleck noted that words are bullets and should be used sparingly, aimed towards a target. Whereas our quip of the day comes from the immortal Mark Twain, who once said, It ain't what you don't know that gets you. It's the things you know that ain't so. And although our source identifies uh, that as being a Twain quote, we think that comes from Ken Hubbard. But anyway, great quip. Our stat of the day, and there are two, comes from Foreign Affairs slash Public Agenda, which it's noted that two-thirds of Americans say the country's foreign relations are on the, quote, wrong track, unquote. A similar percentage, 68%, believe the rest of the world views the U.S. negatively. The data gives no indication of whether those polled see any connection between the two. And finally, we have a selection of shotgun etiquette from shotgunrules.com, the most complete and comprehensive listing of shotgun rules available today. And for those who don't know, the shotgun position in the vehicle is that next to the driver. According to ShotgunRules.com, the vehicle in question must be visible before shotgun can be called. It stated that shotgun can no longer be called once someone's hand is holding the door handle. Once the shotgun seat has been called by someone, other less prestigious seats in the car 
may be claimed by using the same rules for calling shotgun. And as finally, it's stated that if a discrepancy ever occurs, and they commonly do, the right to get the shotgun seat is usually settled with a single game of rock, paper, scissors. The good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for pork fat. After a team of food scientists at Leeds University discovered the perfect formula for the perfect bacon sandwich. This after testing 700 different combinations of cooking temperatures and cuts of bacon. The critical element they found is crunchiness. Everyone agrees that tough or chewy bacon is a turnoff, said learned scientist Graham Clayton. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Texas citizens after legislators in the Lone Star State announced they will soon make it easier for the blind to hunt with guns. Apparently all hunters in Texas are currently banned from using laser sights on their high-powered rifles. This, of course, is a serious hindrance to blind hunters who in the past have generally sighted their targets by having a friend tell them where to aim. But uh, a new law passed by the State House and sent to the Texas Senate creates an exemption for the blind. Which will, said sponsor Representative Edmund Kempel, quote, make a much cleaner harvest, unquote. And it was an ugly week for American jurisprudence when it was revealed in a Boston Globe article that televangelist Pat Robertson's Regent University Law School in Virginia Beach, Virginia, has become one of the top suppliers of personnel to the Bush administration. Regent Law School, which U.S. News & World Report ranks in the lowest tier of American law schools, includes among its distinguished alumni Monica Goodling, a top assistant to Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, until she resigned last week after refusing to testify before Congress about the fired prosecutor scandal. The Globe noted that because Goodling graduated from Regent in 1999 and has had scant prosecutorial experience, her qualifications to evaluate the performance of U.S. attorneys have come under fire. Regent Law School was founded in 1986 when Oral Roberts University shut down its ailing law school and sent its library to Robertson's Bible-based college in Virginia. From the Only in America file, we have the fact that a California perfume company has introduced the world's first biblically-themed fragrance. Virtue, from perfumer IBI, is a mixture of apricot, frankincense, and myrrh. It retails at $80 for a 1.7-ounce bottle. Said IBI CEO Rich Larimore, Virtue will enable its wearers to smell like Christ and many of the saints adding many individuals of high spiritual attainment give off a fragrance attributed to their virtue. Yeah, folks, we don't make these things up. And uh, from the Only in America file part two, 
We have the fact that last week in Pomona, a 48-year-old man accused of using a chain and pickup truck to yank a 1,500-pound ATM from the Pomona Ranch Market failed to escape police when his prosthetic leg fell off. And finally, from the only in Russia, perhaps, file, we have the results of a poll that showed that less than one-third of Russian citizens believe that hard work can lead to wealth. Asked to choose the most reliable ways to get rich, 45% of Russians cited having influential connections. Hard work came in at 32%, just ahead of embezzlement, graft, and stealing. We here at Radio Parallax, conversely, would like to believe that hard work can indeed lead to wealth. We're working pretty hard, and we're hoping that you will chip in some of the wealth. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm, I get high with a little help from my friends. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friends. Yes, we're going to get by with a little help from our friends. I, I just know it. Included among our friends are uh, Steve Alexander, who's been a great help to us over the years. Uh, I did note that at, uh, at his son's bar mitzvah last week, one of the people there said, Hey, I got your radio program. You talked about uh, that, that flood control. Yeah, you're right. I'm going to vote against it. So we figure there's three votes. We, uh, we know we can count on our friends Sean and Kathy out there in uh, the world of the listener. And oddly enough, uh, all three of those individuals I mentioned associated with this show have a link to the late, great Kurt Vonnegut. In one of our very first programs uh, here on KDVS, uh, Steve told a story about uh, when uh, the two of us and some other guys were back in the Webster Emerson dorm in the early 70s, and I believe they were reading Slaughterhouse-Five in an English class. They got to wondering what Vonnegut uh, meant about this or that, and Steve got the bright idea of, why don't we give him a call? Being an enterprising individual, he actually got Kurt Vonnegut on the line. And we got uh, quite a laugh back in the dorm in those days at the uh, the brief tape recording of Steve asking Vonnegut about what he meant. I think Vonnegut rather tersely reply, I wrote the book because I wrote the book, not so you could take it apart in English class. I'm pleased to note that many years later, I had a chance to uh, attend a lecture by the immortal Mr. Vonnegut here at the Scottish Rite uh, Temple uh, in Sacramento. By the 1960s, of course, Kurt Vonnegut uh, really became quite a classic American writer. My personal two favorites of his are Cat's Cradle and God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Our good friend Dr. Andy Jones pointed out to us uh, some time back that, uh, that Vonnegut gave himself six A's among all his various literary works, and among those A's were God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which he gave an A, and Cat's Cradle, which he self-graded as A+. Once when driving with my aforementioned friends Sean and Kathy from Sacramento up to Vancouver, B.C., I brought along God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, and during the trip read the whole darn thing. I think we should take a moment to excerpt one of these works, and I think we can't do much better than uh, chapter 42 of Cat's Cradle. At this point in the book, the protagonist is winging his way into the Caribbean to the island republic of San Lorenzo. There was a small saloon in the rear of the plane, and I repaired there for a drink. It was there that I met another fellow American, H. Lowe Crosby of Evanston, Illinois, and his wife Hazel. Hazel. 
They were heavy people in their 50s. They spoke twangingly. Crosby told me that he owned a bicycle factory in Chicago, that he had nothing but ingratitude from his employees. He was going to move his business to grateful San Lorenzo. You know San Lorenzo well, I asked. This will be the first time I've ever seen it, but everything I've heard about it I like, said H. Low Crosby. They've got discipline. they got something you can count on from one year to the next. They don't have the government encouraging everyone to be some kind of original pissant nobody ever heard of before. Sir? Christ, back in Chicago we don't make bicycles anymore. It's all human relations now. The eggheads sit around trying to figure out new ways for everyone to be happy. Nobody can get fired no matter what. And if somebody does accidentally make a bicycle, union accuses us of cruel and inhuman practices. And the government confiscates the bicycle for back taxes and gives it to a blind man in Afghanistan. And you think things will be better in San Lorenzo? I know damn well they will be. The people down there are poor enough and scared enough and ignorant enough to have some common sense. Crosby asked me what my name was and what my business was. I told him, and his wife Hazel recognized my name as an Indiana name. She was from Indiana, too. My God, she said, are you a Hoosier? I admitted I was. I'm a Hoosier, too, she crowed. Nobody has to be ashamed of being a Hoosier. I'm not, I said. I never knew anybody who was. Hoosiers do all right. Lo and I have been around the world twice, and everywhere we went we found Hoosiers in charge of everything. That's reassuring. You know the manager of that new hotel in Istanbul? No. He's a Hoosier. And the military, whatever he is in Istanbul? Attaché, said her husband. He's a Hoosier, said Hazel. And the new ambassador to Yugoslavia? A Hoosier, I asked. Not only him, but the Hollywood editor of Life magazine, and that man in Chile. A Hoosier, too? You can't go anywhere a Hoosier hasn't made his mark, she said. The man who wrote Ben-Hur was a Hoosier. And James Whitcomb Riley. I don't know what it is about Hoosiers, said Hazel, but they've got something. If somebody was to make a list, they'd be amazed. That's true, I said. She grasped me firmly by the arm. We Hoosiers got to stick together. Right. You call me Mom. Uh-huh. Let me hear you say it, she urged. Mom? She smiled and let go of my arm. Some piece of clockwork had completed its cycle. My calling Hazel Mom had shut it off, and now Hazel was rewinding it for the next Hoosier to come along. Pretty good stuff. Let's do a bit of news. We speculated a few weeks back on this item, and it looks as though uh, the data is now in, and it does appear that this year's early switch to daylight savings time hasn't produced much energy savings. Yes, there have been some small decreases in lighting usage in the evening, but those have been offset by increased usage in the morning, and the extra daylight in the evening has encouraged people to drive around after work, shopping, etc., a poll done by the U.S. Department of Transportation indicates that Americans prefer daylight savings time, and you know, there's a lot to be said for it, but apparently energy savings is not turning out to be one of them. How about this? A new study of 8,000 Americans shows that a quarter of people taking antidepressants are misdiagnosed and would bounce back without medical help. Researchers found that about one in four, quote, depressed, unquote, people were suffering the aftereffects of an emotional blow. Unlike those who are clinically depressed, those people will return to a normal state of mind after a passage of some time. Unfortunately, if patients walk into a psychiatrist's office with sad feelings, they are likely to emerge with a prescription for antidepressants. 
In uh, happier but somewhat bizarre news, uh, Dr. Chris Lowry of Bristol University in the UK recently inoculated some mice with harmless uh, bacteria called Mycobacteria vasae. As a result, their serotonin levels appeared to soar, indicating that uh, there was an upswing in the mice sense of well-being, although that's a hard thing to pin down. It appears that the bacteria are apparently stimulating uh, the mood-regulating part of the brain's limbic system. Lowry told the BBC this study leaves us wondering if we shouldn't all be spending more time playing in the dirt. Maybe that's why gardeners have such a great, uh, you know, relaxed state of mind out there puttering around the, uh, the leaves and grass. Yeah, you know, who knows? A couple of items from the political world. Uh, I did not realize until very recently, perhaps you knew this, dear listener, I did not. Uh, Mitt Romney is the son of George Romney, former Michigan governor. Mitt Romney, the former governor of Massachusetts, is currently in the process of becoming a born-again conservative. Polls taken back in 1967, however, showed that his dad, George, was at that point the front-runner for the Republican presidential nomination that later went to Richard Nixon. The elder Romney's campaign uh, was derailed when, after a trip to Vietnam, he came back and reported that in his visit to Army headquarters, he'd been brainwashed. Considering the misinformation and disinformation that was coming out of uh, Army headquarters circa 1967, uh, it's clear that George Romney was hitting the nail on the head. Unfortunately, as politicians uh, learn quickly sometimes, um, telling the truth can be fatal to your political aspirations. Of course, there's not much danger that practice will take over the art of politics. And uh, we kind of doubt that Mitt is going to repeat his dad's mistake. And uh, final news item here, April 6th, uh, 2007, Sacramento Bee, uh, reprint of the Washington Post article by R. Jeffrey Smith. I love this headline. Report, Saddam, Al-Qaeda, not tied. This amazing headline uh, came from declassified Defense Department reports released uh, the day before on April 5th. And apparently this came after the April 4th revelation, Santa Claus, fictional person. Over in China, what's alleged to be American capitalism and what's alleged to be Chinese communism seem to have achieved this kind of a synergy. Gotta read from this recent AP article, Dateline Shanghai. U.S. fast food chains McDonald's and KFC said that they're working with the Chinese authorities to resolve accusations that the companies underpay their part-time workers. Labor bureaus in southern China began investigating after the state-controlled newspaper New Express Daily reported that McDonald's, KFC, and Pizza Hut were paying part-time workers less than the local minimum wage of about $1 an hour. The companies are saying that they're seeking clarification regarding recent changes in labor regulations. In a statement earlier this month, McDonald's China said, No one cares more about our workers than we do. I guess up to at least, like, $2 an hour. And uh, we have Robin to thank for pointing out this uh, particular bit of insanity from the world of commerce. You may have seen this guy Jim Cramer on uh, CNBC's Mad Money program, ranting and raving and stomping about the uh, soundstage. Cramer's show, of course, is all about what stocks you need to buy, all these great insider tips. Well, apparently in a recent interview, he confessed that in his previous life as a hedge fund manager, he tried to improperly manipulate the stock market. 
No one else would ever admit to that, he said in a video interview. No one else would ever admit to that, he said in a video interview on a financial website, adding curiously, I'm not going to say it on TV. No, no, we're sure your secret's safe on the website, Jim. Curiously, for a guy making uh, a living by, uh, you know, manically pumping stocks, in this interview he went on to say that when he worked on Wall Street, he would use bozo reporters, that's his term, to spread false reports about companies. And when he was shorting a stock, meaning he was betting the stock would fall, he would launch a raft of sell orders to foment a selling frenzy. This uh, drives the stock down, and in fact, the tactic is illegal. But he said, you do it anyway, because the SEC doesn't understand it. <laughs> and he, he described his various maneuvers as very satisfying. Radio Parallax is betting at this point that the stock of Jim Cramer is going to take a dive pretty soon. I want to also thank our friend Jane for uh, putting us on the trail of uh, a DVD that's been released recently that you need to go and get your hands on. The movie is Idiocracy. It was produced by Mike Judge, better known as the, uh, the man behind Beavis and Butthead. Mike Judge's previous uh, comedy, Office Space, uh, became a cult classic, uh, basically through word of mouth, and we hope that Idiocracy does likewise. The premise of the movie, a totally average in every, every way uh, army private is put into an, a hibernation project that uh, goes awry and doesn't wake up for 500 years. And when he wakes up, the America that he uh, is now walking around in is a trashed out landscape that uh, is described as part zombie land and part broken down Blade Runner. We say, uh, do yourself a favor, go, uh, go rent this film, uh, take a look, and then send us an email about, uh, about what you think. In other showbiz news, Florida Governor Charlie Crist is being asked to pardon the late Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, this 38 years after he was convicted of exposing himself during a Miami concert. Dave Diamond, a cable TV promoter from Dayton, Ohio, wrote to Governor Crist last month asking for the pardon. Diamond said the goal is to remember the Melbourne, Florida native as an artist, not a rock and roll bad boy with a rap sheet. <laughs> Chris is an alumnus of Florida State, which Morrison also attended. Well, given that fact, I'm certainly willing to review it, said Chris. Jim Morrison was charged days after a concert in Dinner Key Auditorium in Coconut Grove in 1969. He allegedly exposed himself and simulated a lewd act. He was acquitted on felony charges for lewd and lascivious behavior, but was convicted of indecent exposure and profanity. Here's one of the most curious parts of the story. Jim Morrison's father, retired U.S. Admiral George S. Morrison, age 87, and lives in, who lives in California, said he would support a pardon. Come on, come on, come on, come on, now touch me, baby. All right, at this point in the program, I think we need to go uh, to uh, our sister station, KDIRT, here in Davis, uh, where we actually are rebroadcast. I'm not sure where Jeff has us on the schedule at this moment in time, but I, I do know that we're over there. And you, in fact, may be listening to a rebroadcast on KDIRT right now. 
in which case our next uh, guest should be familiar to you. I know that when we get done uh, with the the show uh, every week and get in the car to drive home, I usually turn on to K-Dirt because over on 105 FM, there's a show that we find is very reminiscent of what we do here. And in fact, I'd like to bring you the host of that program now, Carl Mogul, who does a fine job every Thursday. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Carl. Thanks. It's really great to be here. Can you tell us uh, can you tell us a little bit about how long you've been there, what you've been doing, and what uh, what your goals are for the show each week? I've been on K-Dirt ever since it uh, went on the air about two and a half years ago. And I was actually never trained to use the equipment, but I got grandfathered in because I just learned how, and it's been <laughs> really fun. I've been... I wanted to do a show talking about science news. I've got this addiction to research that comes out. I just have to get my fix every week, and I found an outlet for it, and that is to talk about it uh, to whoever would like to listen. And I thought I would play science fiction film music, rotating it from week to week, as the theme music to make it a little interesting. And over the years, I've accumulated about 50 soundtracks to be able to keep it... uh, uh, mixed up, and uh, it's been it's been really fun. I've had a bunch of scientists on my show, a lot from UC Davis because they're nearby and convenient, and then a few people from around the country. And uh, I've had one international guest from uh, uh, on the phone from Australia. Not bad. And of course, the show's name is the Inoculated Mind. And you've got a website. I'm looking at your website right now. Inoculatedmind.com. There's one N in inoculated. It's one of the hardest words to spell, and so I've made it hard on myself by choosing it. But when sometimes when people hear the name, they, uh, they're just like, ooh, that sounds like a really cool name. And actually, when I heard the name of your show some, some years ago, Radio Parallax, I thought, now that's another really cool name. I can already <laughs> tell what that's about right there. Parallax, a change in uh, uh, apparent position of an object when the uh, observer's position changes. A great uh, metaphor with that one. You know, Carl, you're the second person after uh, after uh, Molly Ivins to say that she liked. Uh, she says she liked the metaphor as well. So uh, yes. we, we like it. So I'm glad. I'm glad at least uh, uh, you know some folks get it. That's good. Yeah. Well, with uh, with mine, there's a metaphor in it as well, because just like you could uh, inoculate uh, or infect something with, like, let's say, uh, like, say you have a petri dish and you put a bacterium in it, you've inoculated that sterile dish, and the bacterium will grow. Uh, at the same time, you can inoculate it against something like a vaccine. And the way I use the word is to be a metaphor for information, for ideas. That you can have, say, something that would be like a pathogenic thought, something like an ear candle sort of thing. How about creationism? Yeah, there we go, creationism. That's a really big one, pretty pathogenic. It's a science stopper. And then, and on the other hand, you can have say, an argument against it. And so just like a vaccine, you could vaccinate against a disease. You could sort of mentally vaccinate against a, a, a pseudoscientific topic. Basically, what I mean is to give people uh, an answer to some of the questions that they, that they try to raise. What have you been talking about in the show lately? Well, there's been all sorts of news about global warming, uh, particularly hearings that have been conducted uh, in, uh, in Congress. Uh, by a number of uh, senators. Ever since there was the uh, switch of power from Republicans to Democrats in Congress, they've been uh, trying to to investigate some of the science abuses going on. So there have been some global warming hearings. Very funny um, shutdown of uh, Senator Inhofe, uh, who's a global warming uh, denier, by uh, Barbara Boxer, who was chairing the committee he used to chair. I talk about things like that, stuff that sort of 
in the public controversy area. And then also really interesting little bits of news that come across. I understand you've come across some news about uh, pigments of photosynthetic organisms. Interesting stuff's been out lately, yeah. Hey, why don't you invite me on your show? I'll come on when I'm done here. I'll go over there. Oh, yeah. And by the way, we, we did mention that little incident of, of um, Barbara Boxer shutting down uh, Imhoff as well. So obviously great minds do think alike here. But um, you, you have a little thing about bees. You were part of a bee swarm that was uh, fell out of a tree. Are you sort of a part-time uh, beekeeper? Yeah, I'm a hobbyist beekeeper. I once, while well, I was under, an undergrad here at, uh, at Davis studying genetics, I thought I could be an entomologist, but then I realized that uh, staring down microscopes at uh, insects to key them out was not my cup of tea. Um, and by the way, what has been your cup of tea here at UCD? Plant genetics. And uh, actually, on the, at the beginning of June, I start graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so, in a mad dash to get there. And uh, it's too bad that I'll be uh, outside of the, the range of K-Dirt, but um, you can still pick up KDVS on the net. Carl, I got I to gotta ask you this one. What's the deal? You know a little about bees. Do you put any credence to this theory that the bees that are turning up missing in hives all across America are being messed up by cell phone transmissions? Oh, you know, I just came across that one, and it doesn't seem to fit the pattern. Uh, it seems like we have a genuine mystery, and in science we always have these mysteries where we don't know what's going on, and while we're investigating it, people come up with all sorts of hypotheses. Some people have suggested that genetically engineered crops must be killing them or that some of the more plausible stuff would be what is being fed to the bees during the winter is, uh, might be making them malnourished. Or bees have been hit with a lot of diseases. There's everything from mites to small hive beetle and a bunch of viruses, and those all together could be killing them. But the cell phone one is one that's just, I think that's the, the most outlandish one. Um, I, looked, I took a look at it. It was kind of hard because the paper that... Uh, they were citing was um, in German, and I don't speak German. That does make it tough. Yeah, so, but I managed to use an online translator, and uh, my, uh, my partner, Ariella, she's learning German, she helped a little bit, managed to figure out that not only was the paper they're talking about not a peer-reviewed paper, they couldn't find a, a dosage effect. They're trying, to, they're trying to see if turning on a cell phone next to bee call, uh, some bees would make it so that they couldn't find their way back to their, their nest. And supposedly, they found that it would interfere with the bees' navigation systems. But if they gave more and more and more cell phone signals, it didn't have any additional effect. So it's like, it seems like, just like if you give somebody more and more poison, it would kill them faster. You'd think that if cell phones were uh, messing up their navigation systems, that if you gave them more cell phone, it would mess it up more, but it's not. So it's it doesn't sound like, because this wasn't uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal or anything, it doesn't sound like this is uh, uh, really much of a, of a contributing factor. Well, I do find it curious that these, these hives are turning up empty, and they're speculating that, that the bees aren't somehow making their way back. But I've heard also that uh, people have said they're skeptical because parasites and things that would normally prey on the beehives seem to be leaving them alone. Hmm. I, I, I've heard that... Um, the, the colonies seem to be infected by a whole lot of stuff, um, but they're not sure if that sort of stuff that took over after the bees were weakened or if that caused it. And it's, it's really genuine mystery. And people are going to come up with a lot of ideas, and usually you have to check like who's, 
who's trying to promote a particular idea. Like I see, if there are a lot of there, there are some people who generally believe that cell phones are, you know, the cause of everything. And so we're kind of we're kind of waiting. Everybody's wondering about it. It's it's gotten a lot of people interested in bees. When I go to pick up a few bee swarms, the the people that uh, uh, that called me out there, they they know about the the bee problem. Nobody's been able to get anybody to pay attention to the plight of the bees until now. So that's at least a positive thing. Well, Carl, uh, before you go up to Madison, I'll we'll have to bring you back on the show again, but I will try and run over and join you over for your show. How's that sound? All right. Well, you better get your jogging shoes on. <laughs> All right. Carl Mogul, the host of The Inoculated Mind on K-Dirt. Uh, this hopefully will not be his last appearance, and uh, hopefully will reciprocate before this day is out. Thanks for having me on. See you in a bit, Carl. Bye. Promised at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, a very interesting individual with a very good guest. George Pendle writes about science, art, and culture for the Times of London, also the Sunday Times and the Financial Times. And he joins us now from New York City to talk about his book about a most curious character, John Whiteside's Parsons. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of a Rocket Scientist, John Whiteside's Parson. And we want to say welcome to Radio Parallax, George Pendle. Hello, Doug. About a year ago, I was uh, in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine was talking about the origins of JPL. I went on the web, looked up uh, the man it was reputedly named after, Jack Parsons, and I discovered your book. And I found it to be an absolutely marvelous read. You and I talked about it on uh, Insight last year over in Capital Public Radio. And we, we'd be itching to bring you on to KDVS to share this experience with the KDVS listeners. Yeah, well, it'd be my pleasure. How did you stumble upon this story, this, this very curious story about Jack Parsons? Well, Jack Parsons, uh, I first read about in a footnote in a uh, scientific textbook. It was really nothing more than a, a few lines. And it, it said that he had been uh, a maverick rocket scientist, with uh, a rather curious personal life, and that he had died at a young age um, shortly after the Second World War. And uh, I thought that this is curious, you know, uh, why is this uh, man mentioned here? And as I looked into the story of Jack Parsons, I found this almost this Pandora's box which I had opened uh, after finding his name in this footnote. And I'd found that rather than just being an eccentric rocket scientist, he had really been one of the, the godfathers of the American space program. Uh, not only had he been uh, a rocket scientist, he had also been uh, an occultist and the head of an occult group in Los Angeles during the 1930s and 40s. And on top of all that, he'd also been a, a, a science fiction icon, a, a great figure for, for the young and aspiring authors of the day, like Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein. And he had even appeared in some science fiction stories. Uh, so suddenly, from this very, uh, you know, uh, small mention in a footnote in a rather dry scientific textbook, uh, I, I stumbled upon this incredible character. 
Well, it, incredible indeed. Um, I think if you've grown up in America or in any way have followed the space program, one is familiar with the notion that uh, science fiction writers, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, just write, writers in general who have aspired to fantasy, have given scientists something to shoot for. And I think we all think of, of rocketry and, and space exploration as having some origins in writing. But until I read your book, I didn't realize how absolutely, literally true that was. No, it's, it's very true, although many scientists today try and uh, separate themselves or distance themselves from science fiction literature uh, officially, uh, unofficially. Uh, there's been a, a huge stream of, of, of scientists working for NASA and for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who have all been huge science fiction fans. Uh, in particular, uh, the early days of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which uh, my subject, Jack Parsons, uh, uh, founded, uh, we're all great fans of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. Uh, they really and they really took these stories as, as almost prophetic texts. They, they really wanted to, to try and make them come true. And, and holding these books up as their scriptures, almost, uh, you know, Parsons, you know, really wanted to make what Verne's had written on text. He wanted to make it actually happen. Uh, and and it, it's quite extraordinary how, how inspiring science fiction literature was. Uh, around the, the early decades of the 20th century. George, let's go back in time. I think living in an era where we have geosynchronous satellites and, and TV programs, cell phones, bouncing messages, uh, we just we take rocketry for granted. But if you take the clock back to like the 20s and 30s, rocketry did not have a very respectable image. <laughs> not at all. In, in fact, uh, leading on from, from the last question, rocketry was really only discussed in science fiction magazines and novels. It was seen as nothing more than a fantasy, something which teenagers would read about and dream about fighting aliens in some far-off galaxy. Uh, rockets were, were, were science fiction, and, and in the 20s, they were, they were treated with absolute disdain. Uh, a few brave souls, uh, like Robert Goddard, who was, who was really the, the founder of American rocketry, uh, had made great steps forward in making rockets you know, viable alternatives to, to travel. Uh, uh, the possibility of a rocket going into space was really uh, Goddard's uh, ideal, but he had been shunned by both the scientific uh, community and the public. Uh, no less an authority than the New York Times had described him as something of, of a lunatic, and he had been forced to take his uh, experiments into the deserts of New Mexico, where he became a, almost a martyr to, to, to rocketry. Uh, and so it was with this vast kind of mass of public, uh, you know, disapproval <laughs> against rockets that uh, Jack Parsons, the subject of my book, uh, began his work, uh, really prompted only by, by the science fiction manuals. Uh, like I say, no textbooks mentioned rocketry. In fact, uh, a textbook as late as 1936 uh, on astronomy said that rocketry was, was fancy. Uh, no scientist really took it seriously. Well, I think a lot of people listening are saying, well, hey, what about the rocket's red glare from, from the American national anthem? Uh, they do go back to the ancient Chinese, but no one, no one was able to direct them as they, as they would see fit. Well, that's right. I mean, the rocket as a contraption, uh, you know, a cylinder propelled by the combustion of its contents, it is over a thousand years old. But over those thousand years, they were just proven to be incredibly hard to control. Uh, the Chinese uh, invented them around 1000 A.D., and uh, use them as weapons, but they were very dangerous and very hard to control weapons. Uh, over the centuries, armies had rocket battalions, and the uh, rocket's red glare, as mentioned in the Star Spangled Banner, 
uh, were the British rockets fired uh, against the Americans. But really, as artillery improved, the rockets were pushed to one side. Uh, rockets uh, weren't viable uh, as a weapon. They were too hard to control. They were too difficult to work out because they were literally controlled explosions. That's what they were. And, and this was much too difficult for, for most people to, uh, to deal with. So by the dawn of the 20th century, rockets had been entirely replaced uh, as weapons by, uh, by cannons and artillery guns. Let's fast forward then from uh, the bombing of Fort McHenry to 1935. At this point in time, rocketry is being tinkered with. I think the Germans are doing some work, Werner von Braun, people like that over, over in Europe. Robert Goddard has sort of uh, been shunned. He's, I guess by that point, he's probably in New Mexico. But in Pasadena, California, a couple of 22-year-old kids decide, you know, we need to pursue this, and they go over to the Caltech campus to see if they can drum an interest. Tell us how this all came about. Jack Parsons uh, grew up in, in Pasadena, and he was a, a fan of science fiction, as I've said, and he was also a great tinkerer. He and his best friend, Ed Foreman, used to try and build rockets in their backyards and, uh, you know, were setting rockets off which would explode and anger all the residents of, uh, of the town. And they got to a certain stage in their experiments by conversing with various other enthusiasts around the world. Uh, they got to a stage where they needed some kind of scientific support. They needed backing, both financial and technical. And Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman, who really had little more than high school educations, decided that if they were going to get scientific backing, there was only one place they could go, and that was the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, the Caltech. They were brazen about it. They walked in the doors and they said, hey, is anybody working on rockets? <laughs> and of course, there was something of a, of a snicker when they mentioned this, but it so turned out that they were lucky, and, and that's really one of their great skills. They were lucky. And they happened upon uh, a young uh, graduate student named Frank Molina, who was 23 years old, who had... Uh, been interested in rockets to a certain extent. He, he was wondering why no one else had really studied them. And the three of these you know, young men got together and they began working on rockets with, the, with Caltech's uh, consent, uh, albeit uh, begrudging consent. Um, they began working on rockets on campus. Now, this led to all sorts of uh, troubles because rockets being such uh, dangerous and uncontrollable uh, subjects were, were often uh, liable to explode. Um, and it gained them the nickname the Suicide Squad by <laughs> the members uh, of Caltech, because every now and then an explosion would rip across the Caltech campus. Uh, one of them would be seen covered in soot. And literally, it, it, was a, it, it, was, it would have been funny if it hadn't been so dangerous. And that's how it all started. You know, I, I can't resist uh, uh, taking a quote you used on the last uh, time we talked about this about these early days, you referred to it as the Bugs Bunny approach. <laughs> right, it really was. It was very much, you know, set, you know, set fire to something and see what happens. And, and it really was that there were so many uh, near-death experiences from the three of them. Uh, and they were eventually joined by a, a few more enthusiasts who were just wondering who these crazy guys were. But uh, there were near-death experiences as bits of rockets flew past their heads, as they were thrown to the ground. And eventually the university authorities were so flabbergasted at what they were doing, that they thrust them to the Arroyo Seco, a, a dry river valley which ran near the, the campus, where they were allowed to continue their experiments and where the experiments only got louder and more dangerous. As I guess the ringleader to this, or the original impetus for this, comes from Jack Parsons, along with Ed Foreman, joined by Frank Molina. They, uh, I gather, start, start making the darn things work. 
they were literally working out of their own pockets. Uh, they didn't have much funding, although they did have uh, a slight uh, you know, a backing from, from the university. Uh, the one person they did have on their side was the great genius of aerodynamics, Theodore von Kármán, who was an old professor who thought there might be something in this rocket malarkey. So with his backing and really working odd jobs while they could to get money for their experiments, they slowly and painstakingly worked their way forwards to operating rockets, to getting rockets which could fly in the air, which could power, which had thrust, which wouldn't blow up. And as they began to become more successful, the authorities in Caltech and the authorities elsewhere in the government started to look at them uh, less with contempt and more with, like, what can these guys do for us? I guess if you go to Pasadena today, the site of that experiment is the current campus of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, there's even a, a small plaque on the ground, I mean, very small, um, as if they were almost ashamed of their past, but showing the exact first uh, place where their first rocket experiment in the River Valley took place. And now you take a look at the campus, and it's sprawling for miles. It's a vast, incredibly expensive affair. But really, to begin with, it was just a few tin cans, some sandbags, and a couple of trenches to, into which to dive after the, you know, when the rocket blew up. I think it's inspiration for all of our listeners, of course, being on a university uh, uh, radio station here, that a trio of determined 22-year-olds can, can go far. Quite. Uh, and imagine their surprise when they found that with the backing of the government, they, they soon began to, they were able to make bigger and bigger rockets, and they were able to even think about, you know, possibly, maybe possibly, sending a man into outer space. Well, George, what starts out to be, you know, the, the suicide squad on the Caltech campus eventually becomes Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But not only do these, these early efforts found uh, what's today a great institution of rocketry, they also um, got into the commercial aspects of it, starting with someone asking, I guess it was von Karman, if they could find a way to assist heavy bombers getting off of small airfields. That's exactly right. Uh, when the authorities started to see the success of the early rocket uh, experiments, uh, they soon began to wonder how they could put them to use. The, America had just entered the war in 1941, and there was all talk of, uh, of aircraft carriers and of trying to get aircraft to take off from short runways on aircraft carriers. And the idea was to strap rockets beneath the wings of these planes and see if they can, you know, if it would help the airplanes take off. And this was the earliest experiment, uh, or the earliest government-funded experiment, on rockets in America. Uh, it saw the Suicide Squad uh, getting a small, uh, light aircraft and attaching some rather dangerous rockets under the wings, and then seeing, you know, allowing a very brave pilot to take off and firing the rockets as the plane took off. And the results, despite a few uh, upsets here and there and one rather uh, banged-about plane, uh, were successful. And with that, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory became a financial uh, entity. It became backed by the government. And, of course, these jet-assisted takeoff packs or JATO packs are just a standard, uh, standard item in, in warfare ever since. It's a huge step forward, uh, not only in, in helping planes take off from, from short distances, uh, but also uh, in rocketry. This was the, the time when America as a country started taking rocketry seriously. You also, I think, mentioned in the book how, uh, really, a lot of times it just comes down to one guy. In this case, Parsons was just tinkering away with a formula to make these, these jet packs work, and he was inspired by some, uh, some, some very old technology. 
Parsons had been having all sorts of trouble uh, getting the fuel to, to burn correctly. Instead of burning slowly and surely, the rockets had been burning all at once and exploding. And he was trying to work out how he could possibly make a, a less combustible, a less dangerous fuel for his rockets. And one day he was uh, walking uh, down a valley and he saw a house and the roof was being tarred over uh, with asphalt. And uh, he thought, my God, maybe, maybe I can use asphalt in my rockets. Now, this wasn't uh, a crazy idea. He had always read in the classics of, a, of an ancient mixture uh, which the Byzantine Empire had used against its enemies called Greek fire. It was a weapon which was rumored to burn on water and was greatly feared for, for centuries across the Mediterranean for its dangerous kind of combustible properties. Now, there had been rumor, and Parsons himself had thought that maybe the mysterious element inside Greek fire had been asphalt. And using asphalt as the basis for his rockets, the fuel for his rockets, he made uh, not only a powerful rocket engine, but also a stable one, which didn't explode. Uh, it, was, it was looking back to, to look forward, really. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons, and we're speaking with, with author George Pendle. George, it's an, it's an amazing story how a young man, inspired by science fiction, got a couple of great institutions off the ground, what became the Aerojet Corporation, what became Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But I don't think we've even scratched the surface of this character, this individual who was Jack Parsons. Uh, if he'd been born later, he might have been a beatnik in the 50s or a hippie in the 60s. But back in the 30s and 40s, can you kind of paint a picture of just how off he was? Well, yes, it, it was almost as if his character was, it was split down the middle between uh, a kind of scientific, uh, rational side and this other side, his personal side, the side which he, he tried, to, tried to invent himself as uh, as an occultist, as a magician, he uh, he was uh, absolutely fascinated by magic, and uh, he fell under the spell of an English occultist by the name of Alistair Crowley. Uh, now, Alistair Crowley was uh, many things. He was a poet. He was an experimenter with drugs. Uh, but his greatest claim to fame was as a founder of a religion uh, and of a uh, an, an occult sect called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Now, Crowley had this idea that the best thing that man could do was to uh, do whatever he wanted. That was his creed. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, was Crowley's creed. And Parsons completely fell under the spell. I mean, as you said, he could have been a beatnik or a hippie, and he really was in the 30s doing things which people in the 60s were, were much more commonly doing. He, was, he joined this cult and worked his way up and slowly began this experimentation with magic to raising himself to a higher consciousness, to speaking with beings on another plane of existence. And <laughs> so by day, while he was making rockets for the United States government, by night he was you know, trawling through you know, arcane scripts. He was doing magic rituals with, his, uh, with the fellow followers of this cult. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary split between uh, his scientific side and, and his occult side. So I gather that, as, as you mentioned in the book, as Aerojet proceeds, it gets purchased by General Tires, and they're going ahead full tilt with rockets. This, uh, this, this odd character was a little bit less welcome than he'd been previously. Nobody could deny that Parsons was, a, was really a genius. He was, incredible. He was able to control.
throw explosions like no one else. He was like this uh, conductor of the orchestra of explosions. And nobody could deny his ability with, with chemicals, but his private life started to intrude upon his, uh, his, his work. And, you know, people started to complain that when he was doing his rocket experiments, he would stamp his feet on the ground and make pagan chants to pan. Uh, you know, people started to worry exactly what he was doing at home, why he always turned up late and with bags under his eyes, why he was always, you know, seducing secretaries back to his large home on, on, on this very plush street in, in Pasadena. And slowly but surely, the science which he created uh, of rocketry in the United States began to squeeze him out. He just wasn't the sort of character, although he had founded this science, he wasn't the sort of character that really you could rely on anymore. He was becoming much more interested in the occult, more so than even his rocketry. And those two things don't really go together at times. George, we have to address a couple of other characters that uh, that have a role to play in this. In this milieu of rockets, uh, sort of having a salon of occult activity in his home in Pasadena, enters the future head of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, who basically steals Parsons' girlfriend. It's, it's one of those uh, strange occurrences. Parsons seems to be at the hub of this wheel of characters and, and influences and sciences in Los Angeles. And one of these, the, the spokes going off this wheel, was the science fiction spoke. He was a great friend of science fiction writers, and they saw in him this handsome, young rocket scientist who they could write stories about. Now, at the time, L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of Scientology, was a well-respected science fiction writer. He was renowned for his ability to write stories, you know, with thousands of words, words an hour. Um, and he was, Parsons was a great fan of his. And it, it turned out that they managed to meet up in Pasadena, and uh, they took to each other. Uh, this was in uh, the mid-40s, when Parsons was uh, about 30 years old, and Hubbard was about the same. Uh, they began living together in this big house. They used to throw story ideas back and forth between them for Hubbard's stories, and Parsons began to get Hubbard more and more interested in his personal life, in his magic. So it turns out that uh, Parsons and Hubbard began doing magic experiments together. They're trying to summon forces from the other side. Unfortunately, uh, Crowley, Alistair Crowley's uh, dictum that do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law applied more to Hubbard than to Parsons because <laughs> Hubbard just wanted to sleep with Parsons' girlfriend and, and Paul Parsons, being the leader of the cult and not allowed to be jealous or, or seeming to be weak in front of his friend, had to allow him to do it. So it turned out that, that this great friendship was eventually riven because, uh, because Hubbard ran away not only with Parsons' girlfriend, but also a rather large sum of Parsons' own money, which uh, was meant to go into a business investment, which went, uh, which went sour. Final irony, I think, is that um, at Caltech, one of the Chinese students they brought to help him in with their math uh, gets sort of caught up in the whole Cold War intrigues. He leaves in disgust and winds up becoming a man who builds ICBMs for the communist Chinese. Unfortunately, Parsons, along with many members of the, the original Suicide Squad, were swept up in uh, the McCarthy, or just before the McCarthy area of, of the anti-communist witch hunts. And uh, along with Frank Molina uh, and Parsons himself, who had attended a few communist meetings before the war, uh, there was one student uh, named Xian, Su Xian, who was a brilliant, brilliant rocket scientist. Uh, and had worked with the Suicide Squad and made it, you know, into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory alongside Parsons. 
But when he was accused of being a communist, he was eventually chased away to China, where he became a great friend of Chairman Mao and one of the originators of, of the Chinese uh, rocket program. Uh, so it's uh, kind of rather ironic that some of the best geniuses, including Parsons, uh, were forgotten or pushed away uh, and never you know, were really celebrated in their own lifetime. Well, hopefully your book will correct that. Uh, I do, I do, th- I do see this coming to theaters someday, George. <laughs> this really needs to be made into a movie, particularly in the fact that, uh, I mean, you couldn't have a more dramatic end. Uh, uh, Jack Parsons basically dies in an explosion of his own creation. Yes, he really uh, died the way he lived. Uh, nobody really knows quite what happened around his death. Some people say it was an accident while he was making rocket uh, rocket powder. Uh, some people thought it was murder because of his communist links. And some people thought that he was merely trying to summon a homunculus from the other side uh, with which to practice his ritual magic. Uh, nobody was quite sure of what happened, but Parsons certainly probably died the way that he, he probably knew he always would uh, in a kind of holocaust of flame. Well, he's a singularly interesting character, George, and we're glad that you took the time to write this book about him. And I also want to thank you personally for the fact that after reading it, I was inspired by this, this real link I was unaware of between sci-fi and, and science to, uh, to follow your lead and, and look up Ray Bradbury. And we got a wonderful interview out of Mr. Bradbury for this program as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, Ray Bradbury remembers meeting Parsons as a young boy. And, um, well, he's just one of the many people who, who Parsons touched on during his life. The book is titled Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. George Pendle, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you.